Welcome to the Partners Financial Podcast, a podcast designed for you with insights from fellow members as well as NFP and Partners Financial experts. Hi, I'm Kristen Hulot, and I am here with our latest installment of our podcast. I'm joined today by Jane Hall, VP and Chief Underwriter of Partners Financial and NFP, and Dwayne Kilbo, who is SVP Chief Underwriter for Windsor. And Jane and Dwayne are here today to talk to us about electronic health records, why we use them, why they're important, how carriers are using them now, and how the COVID-19 pandemic has in some ways changed the, what, how carriers feel about electronic underwriting. So Jane and Dwayne, thank you for joining me today. I'm excited to have you here and to hear all the things you have to tell us about electronic health records. Well, thanks, Kristen. So if we could jump right in, um, can you guys just start by giving me a brief explanation of what electronic health data is? Yeah, yeah. Let me let me start. I think this is this is uh, it's kind of a misnomer to you know to call it electronic health data because most people, well, I shouldn't say that. Most people actually think of electronic health records as electronic health data, and that's true. It is part of that. But so let me kind of give you a, a kind of a definition here. So electronic or digital health data uh, encompasses a number of different things, but it's everything that's available digitally upon a person. You know, it could be from various sources, various medical uh, sources, etc. You know, most often is used for electronic health records, um, you know, and information from clinics and, and things like that, but it's much broader. So the definition really includes things like pharmacy records, medical billing information, lab information, wellness information, and a host of other things regarding somebody's health. Um, one of the keys, I would say, to digital health data, which is really important to know, is that everything in digital health data, for the most part, is real time. You know, it's all patient-centered, and it's typically available instantly and securely to the people that are requesting it. So those are some real positives. And in the case of a typical APS report, you talk about speed here. You know, the ability to secure you know, digital data is you know, the difference between sometimes 20 minutes and 20 days. It's really, really quick to get. And one of the other things I'd like to point out, too, with digital health data is that this is just the beginning of it. You know, this is the beginning of the road to improvements. And we'll get into this a little bit later as we talk a little bit more, Jane and I will. But most, most frequently with underwriting and with analytics, you start coupling data, you know, in digital data form with analytics, then a whole bunch of other things start to happen. You start getting surrogates for underwriting, you know, medical exams being substituted, as well as, you know, develop algorithms for automated underwriting. So, it's a pretty neat path, and it's a, it's a really neat journey that we're on here with digital health data. Well, that's a much broader realm of information than I initially thought. I thought you were going to tell me it's those online medical records you log into patients yeah, after getting your password six times. <laughs> so given that it's so much broader than, you know, at least I initially thought, and perhaps some of our listeners thought, Jane, what are, you know, Dwayne listed some of the pros of using these speed and, and, you know, accuracy, but can you talk a bit more about pros and even maybe some cons to electronic health data? Yeah, I would talk in terms from um, just from the carrier perspective, when we think of electronic health records, for example, a hospital record, you could get a hospital record and it could be, you know, one, one stay, right? But it could be 800 pages. So you have 800 pages of data 
So I think the difficulty comes in that or the challenges is how do you take that data? How do you uh, funnel it down into those pieces of information that are going to be helpful uh, for underwriting? So I, I think just the size of that is probably um, a big challenge. I say the second one is um, it's 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 a relatively new um, information that's being used in that uh, carrier world, and so there is a startup time to engage in these relationships uh, with vendors, and there's a cost to it, right? So um, I guess that would be a could be a challenge, but again, I think the biggest one is uh, where we've seen it is kind of a bump in the road where how do you connect that data to, to the patient or to the client, right? And there could be coding errors or one piece of information, Dwayne mentioned electronic health data, data is uh, coding, medical and billing coding. And sometimes that isn't always um, accurate or you might have something coded that really doesn't relate to the patient or client. So I think that's a difficulty with it. Yeah, yeah. If, I, if I could just add a couple more things there too, and Jane, absolutely um, right on and spot on. You know, one of the things that I know you and I have talked about as well too, and as we've been studying some of this uh, internally is, you know, what are the, you know, what are the hit rates for this as well? You know, right. so how often when we order electronic health records or somebody orders electronic health records, how often does it produce something? Right. And so like uh, electronic health records on average is about 15 to 20 to 30 percent. You might get something of value there. Um, and then the next question you got to ask, well, once you get the data, what's the usability of it? You know, if you still get the information, is it really good usable data? And uh, and the reason it may not be usable is because when you go out to electronic health records, it necessarily doesn't have the big footprint to span the whole you know the whole universe. There's only certain providers that really participate in the network, so you might get a usability of like sixty percent sometimes. And the same would be true even for patient portals. You know, you you, you might get a thirty percent uptake because you know, people just don't like to give up their passwords perhaps for the portal. Uh, but then after that, you probably get a uptake of our, our hit rate, our usability rate, I should say about 50%. So uh, not bad, you know, good. And so you could listen to those as cons or, you know, pros, but I think they're really pros in my mind. You know, anytime we can, you know, take this and, you know, cut a, you know, a series of days off our application processing, no matter how small it might be, to me, that's a win. And I would say, yeah, good point, Dwayne. And I would say with the patient portals, the, um, that is kind of a, uh, a difficulty, right? You have to get the client to give up their password and in a timely basis. And um, it, it's difficult, but I would say it's also an opportunity too. And I would say on the front end, and you know, maybe we'll get into this later, but certainly I think something that we can do on our end or the field uh, firms can do to engage our clients from the get-go to say, what, what pieces can they gather that would help us on the front end with underwriting and advocating Absolutely. and identifying you know, possible bumps down the road? Absolutely. So Jane, Dwayne talked about all of the different sort of types of electronic health data that's out there. Are, are the carriers utilizing all of these forms or are there some that they use more, maybe they're more accurate, they're more relevant or translatable to yeah. traditional data? Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good point because they, like any data that they've used traditionally, they take a look at it and they say, 
how, how can we use this? Like Dwayne mentioned, what's the usability of it? And then what is the cost, right? What's the cost and, you know, is, is it, um, you know, cost in terms of time reduction and underwriting, that type of thing. But um, yeah, they, they've used it for years. Uh, but what we've noticed is certainly the uptake in it, right? Since, since COVID, um, that really jump-started a lot of them too. But I mean, there's a, a process you have to go through vetting anything, right? It's usually a pilot and then you have vendor contracts that you have to go through and then you have to do studies on the information you get, right? And is it usable? And certainly down the road and it's early in the process for a lot of them that have just started pilots, but you know, what impact has it on mortality? Right, because that's kind of the uh, the end game. There, they want to make sure it's some um, predictive value with it. Yeah, you know, as Jane said, I think a lot of these tools have been around for a long time. You know, I'm thinking specifically about pharmacy databases, right? You know, pharmacy checks, and gosh, um, I think when I was underwriting back, you know, 20 years ago, they came out at that time, really in its infancy then, but they've really taken off now, and they become much more involved and, and they actually have been matched with things like color coding and um, explanations of you know what this medication could be used for from a primary source and, and things like that. So things have gotten much more enhanced with some of the older tools. The newer tools, electronic health records, yeah, you know, uh, the portals, yeah, more new per se, um, but uh, and, and for the most part, a lot of carriers are still in the pilot phase of those right now. But we're starting to see some rollout, though. You know, I know John Hancock, Prue, uh, Principal. You know, they're starting to use these tools on a on almost a routine basis now. And I, I would say the pharmacy uh, database that Dwayne mentioned. I would say almost all carriers are doing that on an automatic basis. Chris, just when they get a formal application, they're going to run an MIB. They're going to run the pharmacy check. Um, and I would say too, it's a one of those tools that we have access to us at NFP. So when we have uh, our large cases, we'll run a prescription check on them. And um, some of our firms also have contracts with um, exam one to run the pharmacy check. So um, that's a valuable thing. Um, I would say, so I would say um, some of them use, I'm sure the prescription database on a regular basis. Folks like, um, I know there's some insurance companies that when COVID hit, they threw out all their resources or they brought them in, I should say, that they just started pinging all those electronic data sources they could regardless of the cost uh, for them during that time because they couldn't get exams or uh, couldn't get medical records. So, yeah. so um, Dwayne, when you were talking about all of the different types of, of electronic health data that's out there and then you and Jane have both repeatedly mentioned sort of the hurdle of getting a client to give up their passwords. My first thought was well, what sort of privacy is involved in electronic health data? But then I thought, well, clients give up this protected personal health information in a paper form all the time, which is not necessarily any more secure than electronic. So, mm -hmm. you know, are we, should we be worried about privacy or is it sort of a red herring that it's not any more or less safe than all of the things we do online and giving up our traditional health information. Yeah, Can you sort of help the, us navigate that privacy thing? 
Yeah, that's such a that's such an interesting question. Is that when you really start unbundling the question? Because you think, well, how many times do I give up my social security number? How many times do I, you know, give somebody my driver's license number when I'm applying for something? You know, and, and I realize there's, you know, there's rules around that and everything as well too. But, um, but yeah, you're absolutely right. Though there are protections under HIPAA for electronic health records, and the platforms that provide these health records do take precautions when handling information. Uh, by saying this, I mean, though, that each platform has rules about how long yeah. data will be available. You know, for example, Soretto, who's one of the big um, providers of electronic health records out there, um, keeps data for 30 days and then it's purged. Uh, MIB, EHR, again, is part of the MIB, um, MIB um, uh, program. Uh, they have uh, electronic health records and they purge after three to five days. And Human API, you know, we talked about that a little bit ago about the... Um, about the, the health portals, um, a client can unshare, quote unquote, at any time. So, so as far as the limits go, more it's more centered on how long do they retain data? How long can you get access to data? But once the carrier has it though, the same carrier rules apply no matter whether it's in the, in the traditional world today or the electronic world with these data providers. But that, that's a good question, Kristen, because I think it does also bring up um, some of the challenges when you're adding on a vendor, we'll call them vendor or new data sources, because you do have to go through those data security checks and make sure that everybody's systems are secure and um, kind of vetting them, right? Both ways, they're vetting us, we're vetting them, um, carriers as well, Dave, because it is so crucial. So what I hear from that, Jane, is that there's actually sort of a higher barrier, more work that goes in on the front end to access this electronic health data and these vendors than maybe from the local doctor who's been using paper records forever, right? Right. Or yeah, you know, put them in the mail and Dwayne and I have been in the industry long enough that uh, you know we had files sitting on our desk that were in bins and underwriters would take those uh, you know, medical records home in the back of their car and maybe stop at, you know, the grocery store on the way. So I would say we've come a long way. And um, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. So smart to ask questions about privacy, but not necessarily something we needs to stop us from moving in a direction of yeah. electronic health data. Yeah, absolutely not. Yeah. Okay. So Jane and Dwayne, both of you, I'm going to have you both sort of opine on this because it's it's a little bit crystal ball gazing um, to some extent, but you both talked about how the pandemic and the inability to actually do exams really sort of pushed the carers more in the direction of electronic health data. So I'm wondering sort of in what ways did COVID maybe accelerate the adoption of electronic health data? And then beyond that, what do you anticipate, you know, we've been sort of speculating about the things that maybe will continue once we, we go back to more of our normal world. So what things do you anticipate the carriers will continue doing or maybe expand on because COVID forced them to sort of speed up the process? Um, I'll, I'll start this one, Jane. Um, so, you know, as you just mentioned, I mean, COVID was really the catalyst that really accelerated everything into, you know, the current state. And um, you know, Jane said it a little bit ago too, that it seems like every carrier we talk to today um, is has data analytics going on. They have, uh, you know, year 2021, you know, acceleration projects going on. They have EHR projects going on and all kinds of data projects going on. 
I think the ultimate goal, uh, as if you, when you talk to carriers, and we're a ways off from this for sure, but the ultimate goal is instant issue. And you know, being able to actually you know, get information in, hit the databases, and then get an instant issue. Now we can do that today uh, with some carriers. Um, a lot of that is simplified issue, and a lot of those you know, policies are issued with you know, a little bit higher rating than you'd find in a normal off-the-shelf, fully underwritten product. But this is for this would be for products that are you know well uh, you know well priced would compete with any you know, product out in the marketplace today. But yeah, that's where it's headed, and that's where I see the whole thing happening eventually. And so as you think about this, um, you know, COVID is you know again was the catalyst. But as far as what's going on, uh, the electronic health records, I can definitely see companies starting to develop algorithms around that. Um, you know, especially with the data that they're getting. And once you start putting analytics around things, then you can start building models and the models will be built to say, if you got this kind of history, you know, what kind of, you know, what kind of debits should you apply to it? What kind of a rate class should you apply to it? So that's definitely coming. Um, and since, and in terms of electronic health records as well, too, or health data, um, you know, there's some strengths and weaknesses as Jane talked about too. You know, it's, it's, it's the ability to, you know, digest this information where you, you know, have a 50 page APS that also turns into 200 pages of APS. And, you know, so you have all this digital noise. So there's a lot of things that have to happen to distill all that down as well, too, to make things more manageable than they are today. Um, and I think the, the other big thing I think we're going to see, um, you know, down the road is just changing the underwriting mindset. Um, today, you know, a lot of underwriters, you know, were born and, and raised in this system that we have right now where you know, APSs are golden. You know, you get the APS and you make your decision based upon that or the exam on the lab results. And you're trained that way. You're comfortable with it. Uh, the future world is going to require more and more underwriters to work with less. So you get a data source that may not be the same thing you're comfortable with before, may not even be as complete as you were before, but you have two or three pieces of information that suggest things look good and you'd be okay with them. And by the way, you can approve that case at best rates. So a lot of things are going to happen. Yeah. And I would say that the COVID, one interesting thing I noticed and talking to my colleagues in the industry is when COVID hit and the carriers added on um, all of the um, different electronic data that they could, they were set up to do. There were bottlenecks. And for the reason Dwayne said is the underwriters that have been underwriting 20 years, 15, five, with traditional requirements, all of a sudden had to look at new data points, right? And, and kind of process it. And even in the smaller cases had to, you know, do a lot of referrals. So I think we had some bottlenecks um, at that time, but I think one of the electronic health data, just to, we've talked about it, but again, the use of it is to say, how can we use this data to either offset the traditional APS we've been getting or laboratory data? I think um, also to use in strategic situations, right? Like how can we use this data for streamlined underwriting? And we've, um, another thing I would say, uh, we've done a really great job at, um, NFP partners, uh, keeping up with our streamlined grid, keeping track of that. And we'll see almost on a, for sure, you know, monthly basis changes to that streamlined grid at additions, changes, face amount. I think we're gonna see um, carriers is the mortality. If it's favorable, we're gonna see an uptick in the amount they're willing to, to go streamlined on which I think will be really exciting for us to move away from the 
you know, 1 million, 2 million, you know, um, levels most carriers are comfortable at. And I think the other way I will talk again, but, um, or have talked about the medical claims data, I think we're going to see that used in, um, actually in um, claims adjudication. When we see a life claim come through, they'll tap into those electronic data sources to, to help with the claims. Yeah. So both of you, as we wrap up this podcast, which has been wonderful, and I feel like I've really learned a lot about electronic health data, more comfortable with it, how carriers are using it and driving innovation. Can you both just sort of talk about how our firms can use electronic health data and these carrier innovations to really improve the underwriting process, both for themselves and for their clients? Jane, you want to kick that one off and I'll... Sure, sure. Um, I guess if I was uh, maybe sitting in the office at the firm level, and when I when I talk to them, I really try to encourage them to use the portal records, right? And the portal records, again, um, very valuable to do some of that pre-underwriting. Field underwriting is going to be more important than ever. And I think doing that field underwriting, especially in individuals that are under 60, can kind of help you uh, triage the case, um, you know, maybe it should be going streamlined, less touches because a lot of firms, um, you know, spend a fair amount of time on um, smaller cases. Producer is very important. A case could be very important, but they need to um, move along with that. So I think portal records would be helpful um, at partners, as I suggest mentioned, we have access to lab uh, picture not sure I mentioned that, but lab picture is a, uh, with, through exam one that we can, we can get that and look at those labs that have historical labs that have been done. Maybe they're not insurance labs, but they'll again, give us a good picture up front, especially in those large cases, we would highly recommend doing that. Um, and also prescription checks, you know, in those important cases, we do have uh, a fillable and formal inquiry form that we've We've, we have at partners, I would suggest kind of using that so we can help triage those cases as well. And um, those are just some of the thoughts I have. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I, Jane, I think absolutely. I think the streamlined underwriting, um, when you got, um, you know, you got Penn Mutual, um, kudos to Penn, seven and a half million dollars streamlined underwriting, that's, uh, that's impressive. Um, you know, potentially going out without an exam on somebody in blood and urine or APS. So um, that's the way things are going. And I think, you know, if you start thinking about this, you know, other carriers are up in their game two to $3 million in face on a streamlined basis. You know, there's still a whole bunch at a million, but still that's very valuable. Mm -hmm. Patient portals, you're absolutely right. And I think there's an opportunity in here for electronic health records as well, too. And I think this is something as we discuss a bit more with our carrier partners and Jane and I and Cindy and and uh, Heather discussed this as well too. Um, I think there's an opportunity in there too. And I think the opportunity might be as a triage tool even. You know, and so I think, you know, as we're gonna probably the next month or two, we'll have a little more clarity on this. Maybe there's an opportunity if you get into that tough case, that large case, and you wanna really ask yourselves, is it worth time to spend a lot more energy on this and spend the money on this as well too? And maybe if we can get like electronic health record that will literally take us, you know, 20 minutes to get from, a, from one of our sources that we can get it from. 
that one APS will probably tell you a lot in terms of, you know, should we pursue this or not? And if there is, it looks good, then get, let's spend the money, let's spend the time, let's go for it. If it doesn't, let's move on to our next opportunity. So I think there's really something to that one there. And I would also add that I've heard carriers had conversations with carriers, and I think this is important. Maybe for um, carriers have have, have kind of, um, they're looking at things differently. And I think in this field, if we can do the same too, I think we've traditionally, you know, go out and get that exam without really kind of looking, what kind of data do we have, whether it's a traditional APS, what do we have in place right now? Because I do feel some carriers are more willing to say, okay, underwrite individually, right? And so if they have that complete medical history, someone's gone in for a complete physical exam in the last 12 months, had labs done, you know, be it an EKG, whatever, they're willing to look at that and maybe offset some of the traditional requirements they might have gotten in the past. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's that's where it's really headed. It really is. And it's underwriting to the person, you know, if all you need, if you got the APS and all you need is a urine, get the urine. You don't need to get the blood, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that works. And, you know, I think if we even look in the future a little bit further, you know, we've talked about this. I know Janie and I have had plenty of conversations on this. Um, I think at some point in time, and this is really kind of crazy, I think rate classes are going to disappear, you know? It's like when you get your auto insurance policy, do you know what rate class you are? Uh, no, you don't. It's just a rate, the premium class. And I think eventually at some point that's going to happen with life insurance. It's not going to happen soon, but it will happen with time. And then the other things too about, you know, how do we negotiate on these cases in the future? And I think that remains to be seen. A lot more data is going into them. Uh, everything's going to be more statistically oriented. Um, so I think, you know, I think we'll be taking some stats classes and really trying to understand, you know, how they came up with their models and, you know, that places that we can find leverage in those as well, too. Again, we're a few years off, but I can see it coming, though. Well, I, thank you both for that. It's, you know, it was really a great insight into electronic health data and the ways that both carers can use it to triage and speed up cases, but also firms can. So I thank you both for your time and your expertise and look forward to seeing how the future evolves and getting to the place of no rate classes. So thank you both for your time today. Okay, bye-bye. Bye, everybody. NFP and its subsidiaries and companies do not provide legal or tax services. Any statements or opinions concerning legal, tax, or regulatory matters should be interpreted as general observations in our capacity as insurance brokers and risk consultants. Any legal or tax matter should be reviewed with the recipient's qualified legal advisor, accountant, and or attorney. The description of insurance or risk transfer products are subject to the terms and conditions of the specific insurance product. NFP does not warrant the applicability or collectability of this specific insurance for the client situation.